Section 11 of The Flight of the Heron by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Part 2, Chapter 4. Walking home with her father next day up the crowded cannon gate after rain, Miss Allison Grant suddenly became aware of a tall Highland officer striding up the street some way ahead. From the occasional glimpses of him, which were all that she was able to obtain in the moving throng, it seemed to be her betrothed, but, if so, he was carrying his right arm in a sling. This was disturbing. Moreover, Ewan, if it were he, and at any rate the officer was a Cameron, was walking at such a pace that Alison and her parent would never overtake him. Unless, indeed, he were on his way to visit them, where they lodged in Hindford's close, a little beyond the Netherbow. Papa, whispered Alison, let us walk quicker. Yonder's Ewan, unless I'm much mistaken, on his way to wait upon us, and he must not find us from home. They quickened their pace, without much visible effect, when, lo, their quarry was brought to a standstill by two gentlemen coming downwards who encountered and stopped him. Now, let us go more slowly, sir, suggested Alison, dragging at her father's arm. To which Mr. Grant, complying, said, My dear, to be alternately a greyhound and a snail is hard upon a man of my years, nor do I understand why you should be stalking Ardroy in this fashion. Oh, Ewan is rather like a stag, thought Alison. He carries his head like one. Papa, she explained, I want to know, I must know, why he wears his arm in a sling. Look, now that he has turned a little, you can see it plainly. And, you remember, he disappeared so strangely last night. And now, crawl as they would, they must pass the three gentlemen, who made way for them instantly, not to turn the lady with her hooped petticoats into the swirling gutter. As Ewan, for it was he, raised his bonnet with his left hand, Alison cast a swift and comprehensive glance over him, though she did not pause for the fraction of a second, but, acknowledging his salutation and those of his companions, went on her way with dignity. But she walked ever slower and slower, and when she came to the narrow entrance of their clothes, she stopped. Yet, even then, she did not look back down the cannon gate. Papa, did you hear? Those gentlemen were asking you and what had befallen him. I heard something about disturbance and grass market. You saw his hand was all bandaged about. He looked pale, I thought. What can he have been at last night? Not fighting a duel, surely. Well, my dear, here he is, so he can tell us. And that is, if he is disposed to do so, observed Mr. Grant. Good day, Ardry. Were you coming in by? I intended it later on, replied Ewan, with more truth than tact. But, but now you see that you behove to at this moment, finished Alison with determination, looking very significantly at his arm. And Ewan, without another word, went obediently up the close with him, secretly admired from above by a well-known Whig lady who happened to be at her window and who remarked to her maid that the Jacobite miss lodging overhead had a brawl lover, for all that he was a wild Helen man. And presently the wild Helen man was standing in the middle of Mr. Grant's parlour, and the Jacobite miss was declaring that she could shake him, so little could she get out of him. And they say you can ask anything of a Cameron save butter, she said indignantly, but it's clear that there are other things, too, you'll never get from them. Ewan smiled down at her, screwing up his eyes in the way she loved. He was a little pale, 
for the pain of his cut hand had kept him wakeful, but he was not ill-pleased with life this afternoon. "'Yes, other people's secrets, to wit,' he said teasingly, and then, feigning to catch himself up. "'My sorrow! Have I not the unlucky tongue to mention that word in a woman's hearing? What I've told you, Medal, is the truth. I had an encounter last night with some of the castle garrison, and my hand, as I say, was hurt. Scratched, that is, as I warrant you have sometimes scratched yourself with a needle or a bodkin.' Oh, the needle's never been threaded, whose scratch required as much bandaging as that, retorted Alison, with her eyes on the muffled member in the sling. And what was Jan I heard as I passed about a disturbance in the grass market? Has she not the ears of a hare? observed Ewan to Mr. Grant. Tis true, there was a disturbance in the grass market. If that is so, then I'll learn more of it before the day's out, deduced Alison with satisfaction. And you, sir, that ought to know better— brawling in the town at such an hour. I thought the prince had summoned you last night. Not that I remarked your absence from the ball, she added. I was quite unaware of it, I assure you, in the society of my cousins of Glen Morriston. Ewan looked across at Mr. Grant and smiled. My dear, protested the old gentleman, an encounter with the castle garrison can scarce be called brawling. We are, it may be said, at war with them. "'But are they not all as mild as milk up there, now that the prince has lifted the blockade?' inquired Alison. "'And how could Ewan have met any of them in the grass market? "'The poor men dare not show their faces there. "'The place is hotching with Camerons and Macdonalds.' "'Who said I met them in the grass market?' retorted Ewan. "'But never fret, Miss Curiosity. "'Some day I'll be free to tell you where it was.' "'Wherever it was,' said Miss Grant with decision." I'll be bound twas you provoked the disturbance. Her lover continued to smile at her with real amusement. In a sense, there was truth in this last accusation. What's a fine character you give me, indeed. I think I'd best be taking my leave until you appreciate me better. And he put out his left hand to take his bonnet from the table where he had laid it. Something sparkled on the hand as he moved it. Who gave you that ring? exclaimed Alison. Nay, that I have a right to know. Ewan put his hand behind him. No woman, Alison. Then you can tell me who it was. Come, Ewan Foyer, if there be a mystery over the ring also, why, you should not be wearing it for all the world to see. Oh, that's true, said Ardroy, and he relinquished his hand. Yes, you can take it off. Tis not so plain as it looks, neither. There's a spring beneath. Oh, breathed Alison her eyes very wide. The chaste gold centre of the ring had moved aside in the midst of the rose diamonds, and it was a tiny miniature of the prince which she held. Ewan, he gave you this? I did not steal it, my dear. Yes, he gave it me this morning. For, on account of what happened last night? Ewan nodded. For my prudence. You see, the prince does not write me down so turbulent as you do. There was something like tears in Alison's eyes. Prudence? Oh, no, it was because you gained that needle scratch for him. She kissed the ring, and taking the strong, passive hand, slipped it on again. Oh, I will not plague you any more. Does the wound pain you, dearest heart? But next day Hector Grant came into possession of the story, more or less correct, which was flying about Edinburgh, and presented his sister with a fine picture of her lover, alone against a score of the castle redcoats, 
standing with his back to the secret stair, hewing down the foe until his sword broke in his hand, and the Cameron guard rushed in only just in time to save him. And, Alison unveiling this composition to the hero himself at their next meeting, Ewan was constrained in the interests of truth to paint out this flamboyant battle-piece and to substitute a more correct, but sufficiently startling scene. Alison certainly found his sober account quite lurid enough. "'And you let the English officer go after that?' she exclaimed breathlessly. "'But you and dearest, why?' "'For one reason, because twas such cursed ill luck that his men should run away for the second time,' replied Ewan, settling his silken sling more comfortably. "'For the second time? I've not yet told you who the officer was. Cannot you guess?' "'Surely it was not Captain Wyndham here in Edinburgh.' "'It was Captain Wyndham himself. "'I have no notion how he got here. "'It must have been before we took the town. "'But I was sorry for him, poor man, "'and it was quite plain that he had no real intention of killing me. "'Indeed, he was greatly discomposed over the affair. "'So you must not lay that to his charge, Alison.' "'And so you have met again,' said Alison slowly, "'her eyes fastened on her lover.' a great service, a bitter grief. This was neither. It was not then because of your foster-father's prophecy that you let him go. And now you stared at her. Oh, faith, no, darling, for I had clean forgot about it. Okay, it begins to fulfill itself then. Bright and cold, or wet and windy, the October days went by in Edinburgh. Ewan's hand healed, and that secret fear which he had mentioned to no one save Dr. Cameron, who dressed it, that he would never be able to grip a broadsword again, passed also. And having waited upon Lady Easterhall and Miss Cochrane a day or two after the fracas to ask how they did, not that he had omitted to reassure himself of this on the night itself, before he left, he then, by the old lady's desire, carried Alison to visit them also. And it is possible that Miss Cochrane envied Miss Grant. But up at the castle the days went a great deal more slowly, particularly for Captain Keith Wyndham, who had little to do but to pace the battlements and look down, as he was doing this morning, when October was almost sped, on that unrivaled vista of which he was now heartily sick, and remember all the mortifications, professional as well as personal, which he had suffered there since the end of August, when he had made his way thither from Fort William with the news of the Highland advance. For, after the startling tidings of Cope's avoidance of the rebels, leaving the road open before them to Edinburgh, Keith, secure but chafing, had endured the spectacle of vain attempts by the frightened citizens to repair and man the walls, and to raise a body of volunteers, almost immediately disbanded, lest their lives should be endangered. And the sight of two regiments of His Majesty's dragoons in full flight along the Lang Dykes with no man pursuing. Finally, to complete and symbolize the great scandal and shock of Cope's lightning defeat, he had with his own eyes seen, struck defiantly into the outer gate of the castle, the dirk of the single Jacobite officer, who on that occasion had chased a party of terrified troopers thither, like rabbits to their burrow. On top of all this had come his own personal humiliation and disappointment, and of this Ewan Cameron and no other had been the cause. The soldiers of LaSalle's regiment, who had so shamefully deserted the officer in charge of them, had been severely punished, but this did little to heal the very sore place in Captain Wyndham's memory. 
Sometimes it was only anger which colored his recollections of that scene in Lady Easterhall's house. Sometimes it was shame. Sometimes he wondered if he had not permanently injured Ardroy, and though, as a loyal subject of King George, he ought no doubt to have been glad of the possibility, in view of how the hurt had been inflicted, and of the Highlander's subsequent behavior, the idea filled him with a feeling far removed from satisfaction. And even worse might easily have come of his onslaught. Keith was inclined to shudder still when he thought of that contingency, and not merely because, with you in dead or dying on the floor, he himself would have received short shrift from the Camerons when they broke in. How nearly he had succeeded in capturing the prince, he supposed he would never know, but there was no doubt that it was Ardroy who had destroyed whatever chance he might have had. Chosen as Keith had been to lead the flying raid that evening, because he was the only officer in the castle who had seen Charles Edward Seward face to face, he could then have blessed fate for having sent him to Glenfinnan. Thus, he had reflected, as they marched stealthily down the close, does profit come out of the unpleasant? Already, he saw his name in every new sheet as the captor of the pretender's son. Alas, he had merely come anew into collision with the same stubborn and generous character, and once again, though their positions this time had seemed to be reversed, he had had the worst of it. And on this occasion, the Highlander had shown him a new and unsuspected side of himself, for it was Ardroy who had played with him, sitting so coolly in front of that table on which hung the secret. Oh, God, if he had only guessed! And so, Keith had come back empty-handed, with the knowledge that but for Ardroy's quixotry he would not have come back at all. Huddled in his enemy's own cloak, for its real ownership, luckily for his peace of mind, he never discovered pushed ignominiously to safety down the very passage by which his quarry had eluded him. He had been ever since weighed down by a debt, which was well-nigh a grievance. There were times when he almost regretted that he had not remained and been made prisoner. And always times when he asked himself why you and Cameron had acted as he did. He was sure that he himself would not have been so foolish. The days of chivalry were over. One did not go about in this century, behaving like the knights in the old romances. An enemy was an enemy, at least to a professional soldier, and it was one's business to treat him as such. The cursed part of it was that people who were insane enough to behave as Ardroy had behaved somehow attained a position of superiority, which was distinctly galling. And galling also was it to realize, as Keith Wyndham suddenly did at this moment, how much time he spent in speculating what that curious young man might be doing, down there in the city spread out like a map. Strange that he had not at first recognized him that night. Extraordinarily handsome Ardroy had looked, and devilish cool he had kept, too, in a tight place. A fool that he was! He was at it again! Keith turned from the battlements, glad of a diversion, for he had become aware of the approach of a wheeled chair which he knew to contain the aged but spirited form of General Preston. General George Preston, Deputy Governor of Edinburgh Castle since 1715, to whom, old and infirm though he was, it was likely that his Hanoverian Majesty owed it that that fortress had not been surrendered to the invaders, was a veteran of Marlborough's wars, bearing in fact souvenirs of Gamilly, which had ever since affected his health and his prospects of promotion. He was eighty-six years of age, even older than General Guest, now 
since Cope's flight, commander-in-chief. But whereas that warrior had scarcely left his quarters since he had removed for safety into the castle, Preston, during the more strenuous days of the blockade, had caused himself to be wheeled round in a chair every two hours to supervise and encourage. Since Colonel Philip Wyndham, Keith's father, had also fought under Marlborough, Keith had on one occasion asked the old soldier some questions about the great duke's battles, and found Preston very ready to hold forth on them, and in particular on that bloody fight of Malplaquet, where he had commanded the Cameronian regiment. And Keith remembered suddenly that the Scottish friend of his father's, after whom he himself was named, had met his death at Malplaquet, and spoke to the old soldier about that misty John Keith, of whom he knew so little. Aye, said the general, a Perthshire man himself, I wondered that you should bear Scott's name in front of an English, Captain Wyndham. I suppose yon Keith will have been in a Scottish regiment, but I don't mind of him. Tis thirty-six years sign, you can, a lang time, more than your hale lifetime, young man. So John Keith, who had fallen on a Flanders battlefield nearly forty years before, became more misty than ever. But Captain Wyndham's prenatal connection with the Scot of Malplaquet had interested old Preston in him, and he announced an intention of reporting on the zeal and vigilance which the officer of the royals had displayed in the defence of the castle. From his chair, from his chair, the old general beckoned to that officer now, and sent his servant out of hearing. Captain Wyndham, a word in your ear. And as Keith stooped, he said gleefully, "'Tis a good word, if ever there was one. I've every reason to believe that Edinburgh will be free of these highland pests the morn." Keith gave an exclamation. "'They are evacuating the city, sir.' The veteran chuckled. "'They intend marching for England, whence I pray not a man of them will return alive. The news has just come in by a sure hand, but I had jaloused it already. In a day or two you'll not see a plaid between Greyfires and the Norlock.' General Preston's sure hand had carried perfectly correct tidings. Against the wishes and the instincts of the chiefs, Prince Charles was about to march into England, believing that he would thus rally to his standard those cautious English Jacobites on whose promised support he built such large hopes, and many others, too, who had made no promises, but who would surely declare for him when he appeared in person to lead them against their alien ruler. And early on the morning of the 1st of November, Ewan took his farewell of Allison in Hintford's close. Lochiel's regiment, like the bulk of the army, was already assembled at Dalkeith, for since Prestonpans the prince had never quartered troops in the city to any great extent, and he himself was already gone. But Ewan, in order to be with his own men in this strange country to which they were bound, had resigned his position as aide-de-camp, and remained behind in order to bring away the Cameron guard, who would presently march out of Edinburgh, with colours flying and the pipes playing. But here there was no martial display, only a knowledge that this, and not the farewell at Ardroy in August, was the real parting. Ewan was setting off today for something much more portentous than a mere rendezvous, armed invasion. Yet some unspoken instinct made them both try to be very matter-of-fact, especially Alison. Here's a sprig of oak for your bonnet, Ewan. You'll be wearing your clan badge now, I'm thinking. I picked it yesterday. And she fastened beside the eagle's feathers a little bunch of sear leaves. And see, I've made you a new cockade. I doubt you'll get your clothes mended properly. England's a dour place, I'm sure. 
Oh, I wish you were not crossing the border. Nothing venture, nothing win, replied Ewan tritely, looking down at his bonnet, about which her fingers were busy. I doubt, for my part, that those oak leaves will bide long on their stalks, Alison, but you may be sure I'll wear them as long as they do. And the cockade, tis a very fine one, my dear. I'll bring back to you somehow. Or maybe you'll get your first sight of it again in London. I wonder will you meet Captain Wyndham anywhere in England, said Alison. How that fellow runs in your head, my darling. I vow I shall soon be jealous of him. And I, marching away and leaving him here in the castle, for I suppose he's there still. Make him my compliments, if you should meet him before setting out for Ardroy, said Ewan, smiling. For to Ardroy were his betrothed and her father retiring in a day or two. Ewan, said the girl seriously, taking him by the sword-belt that crossed his breast. Will you not tell me something? Was there ever a danger that, from the injury Captain Wyndham did you, you might never have had the full use of your hand again? Why, what put that notion into your head? A word you let fall once, and an expression on Dr. Cameron's face one day when I mentioned the hurt to him. For a day or two, Archie did think it might be so, conceded her lover rather unwillingly. And I feared it myself for longer than that, and was in a fine fright about it, as you may imagine. But, Alison, he added quickly, as exclaiming, Oh, my poor darling, she laid her head against him. You're not to cast that up against Captain Wyndham. It was I that took hold of his blade, as I told you, and I'm sure that he never meant. No, no, cried Alison, lifting her head. You mistake me. No, I'm glad of what you tell me, because that hurt he did you is perhaps the fulfillment of the bitter grief which Angus said that he should cause you. Only, happily, it is averted, she added, taking his right hand and looking earnestly at the two red puckered seams across palm and fingers. For that would have cost you bitter grief, you and my darling. She covered the scars with her own soft little hands, held the captive hand to her breast, and went on, eagerly pursuing her exegesis. Indeed, if for a time you believed that you would be disabled always, how dare you have kept that from me? Then he has already caused you great grief. And so that part is over, and now he will only do you a service. But Ewan, laughing and touched, caught her to him with his other arm. The best service Captain Wyndham can do is never to let me see his face again, or I may remember how angry I was with him when I found his letter and his guineas that night at Fassifern. Nor do I think he'll want to see mine, for in his soul he was not best pleased, I'll undertake, at being so lightly let off the other evening, and shown down the very secret stair he could not find. But now, Mukri, do not let us talk of the tiresome fellow any more. And five minutes later, when Hector Grant in his French uniform appeared at the door, they had forgotten everything except that they were parting. "'Come, Ardry, you'll be left behind,' he called gaily. "'Dry your tears, Alison, and let him go. We've eight good miles to cover.' "'I was not greeting, never think it,' said Alison, as she was released. "'But, oh, I'm wishing sore I could come with you two. "'Indeed I wish you could,' said Hector." for I doubt the English ladies cannot dance the reel. Alison looked from her brother to her lover and back again. She might not have been crying, but there was little gaiety in her. There'll be more than dancing over the border, Hector. There'll be better than dancing, you mean, my lass, said Hector Grant, and his left hand fell meaningly on his sword hilt. 
I suppose I may take a kiss of her, I try. End of section 11